0: This is WJCT News 89.9 in Jacksonville. Opinions expressed on the First Coast Week in Review are those of our panelists and do not necessarily reflect the views of WJCT News 89.9.
1: Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler. It's Friday, which means it's time for our First Coast Week in Review. Among our topics, giving the sheriff more power over legal settlements, the question of whether some Confederate monument bills may actually be dead in the water, and Duval County tries once again to find a new school superintendent. To talk about all that and more, I'm joined by Nakisha Williams, author and columnist at Jacksonville Today. Hey, Nikisha.
2: Hey, good morning.
1: Travis Gibson, digital reporter at News for Jax.
3: Good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: Hey, Travis. Nice to have you. And Florida Times-Union watchdog reporter Hannah Holthouse. Welcome.
0: Good morning. Thank you.
1: Thanks for being here. Uh, we also have a somewhat shorter roundtable today in just a bit, an interview with retired brigadier general and Civil War scholar Ty Sajuli. He was in town to discuss his own racial reckoning in the memoir Robert E. Lee and Me, a Southerner's reckoning with the myth of the lost cause. But first, Jacksonville becomes the first city in the U.S. to give agencies heads agency heads veto power over municipal legal settlements. It's an expansion of power that could be a balancing act or it could tip the scales. Hannah, you've been covering this bill extensively. uh, Terrific reporting for the Times-Union. Remind us, how did we get here?
0: So the sheriff requested this bill from city council after the Jamie Johnson settlement, which for people who don't know, Jamie Johnson was a 22-year-old Florida AMU student who was shot by a JSO officer. The officer was cleared of wrongdoing, but the city came to a settlement agreement with Jamie Johnson's family. The sheriff, T.K. Waters, said in November, so a few months after the settlement came out, that he didn't know that that was happening. And so this bill essentially is to make sure that constitutional officers, so the sheriff, the supervisor of elections, people like that, elected officials, have approval power whenever their people are involved in legal settlements. And that's an unusual arrangement. It is. so. Different city officers, so like Anna Brochet, the city's chief financial officer, said that this was actually the only city in the country that has a, that has an agreement like that. And the reason being is that they think it could make it more difficult for the city to keep their liability insurance.
1: So, Travis, give us an overview of this bill. What are the upsides? What are the downsides?
3: Well, I mean, I think a lot of people are... Um, say- from from my perspective looking at TK Waters it seems like he was very upset about this his officer was cleared of any wrongdoing and he his thought process i think is that okay he was cleared of any wrongdoing we shouldn't have to pay out any money we know civil cases are are a lot different than that um i think the downside is it looks like It's kind of looks like a power play on his point, um, from his perspective, that he's trying to get more influence, especially learning that, you know, this is not common. Um, So I think there's a lot of downsides that he's trying to grab for more power and there's lots of pushback.
1: Mm -hmm. There has been pushback. And, Nikisha, this bill was strenuously opposed by some groups, um, local advocacy groups, including the Northside Coalition, the Jacksonville branch of the NAACP. Jacksonville Community Action Committee.
2: What are their concerns? I think the biggest concern is, you know, the sheriff came in on a mandate that he said for himself that he would be completely transparent. And yet he continues to seem to want to operate in the shadows and have complete control over what is released to the public, what is approved in in that. And so when it comes to these situations where they would have autonomy or... Um, the right to say whether or not a settlement is paid off, paid out for whatever kind of altercation, whether it's a death or an injury or whatever the case may be. I think it comes back to the idea personally for the for the for the civil rights groups that are vehemently against this bill, that you know what is a life worth? Because that's what we're talking about. We're talking about you don't think that it's right that a settlement should have been paid for a life that was taken by police officers in custody, whatever the situation may have been. We're not going to judge the acts of the deceased. We're talking about what is that life worth? And you think that you should have the control to determine what that is when you are supposed to be an officer, not just to of public safety, but then also an officer of the court, an officer of peace, an officer of justice. And so when I say that, you know, we have a criminal legal system, Instead of a criminal justice system, this is exactly what I'm talking about, because we are seeing laws that are being created and passed to uphold power structures that would prevent justice for actual lives that are impacted and harmed and lost.
1: And I do think that one of the concerns raised is the idea that it would erode public trust and confidence in city government, especially in cases that involve uh, police shootings or excessive force, if the sheriff is given that position to kind of weigh in or
2: veto Um, A settlement? I think public trust and confidence is already eroded, especially within the black community, which this is what we're talking about when we're talking about this case specifically. Um, People live different lives and your relationship with the police can be very different. I wrote about that in my column in January and got a lot of feedback about it as well. So when we're talking about the erosion of public trust, it's already low. It's been low. I think what we need to do is to think about what's going to build a public trust, and this bill is not it. We're talking about the biggest headlines of the week with our Week in
1: Review uh, Roundtable, and you are welcome to join. You can give us a call at 904-549-2937. You can also email us at connect at wjct.org. You can watch our live stream right now on Facebook or YouTube, and you can reach out on social media. Hannah, this bill was a reaction to a settlement Um, And the genesis of it appeared to be that the sheriff said he wasn't included in those discussions. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about that because this bill uh, or this settlement was reached sometime in August. Is that correct? And and I I believe some additional reporting at your paper showed that, in fact, the sheriff's office was notified um, and that the settlement really predated that. So what what is the connection? What's the through line here?
0: Yes. Yeah, so our columnist, Nate Monroe at the Florida Times Union, did some reporting and through a public records search realized two things. So the first being that the under sheriff and the sheriff's assistant were emailed two days before the Jamie Johnson's family signed the settlement. So not a lot of time, granted, but there was communication there. There was no record of any type of response from the sheriff's office. That was in August. There was also this idea being that the officer involved, how much, um, how much play did he have in the settlement, right? Because this is ultimately his settlement. It is the a case was against him and the city. And a May memo showed that there was going to be a meeting on May thirtieth that the officer and the JSO attorney were invited to, in which they were going to be talking about settlements.
1: And so that mediation would have predated this mayor. But, Travis, one of the things that came up in this discussion, um, I think some of the city council members raised it, was pointing to this as an instance of a failure of communication between the mayor, the mayor's office, the general counsel's office, and the sheriff, um, and that this bill was you know, to remedy that. Um, is, that is that fair? That the, I mean, to say that there was a, a miscommunication between this general counsel, this mayor, when, in fact, the settlement appears to predate this administration
3: yeah it doesn't seem it doesn't seem so I mean I think that's why a lot of people are like okay what's the real motive behind this um, and the one thing that strikes me too is just that um, you know sheriff waters he said he wants to wanted to take this to trial and not settle right I think there's a confidence in in a lot of law enforcement officers to try to take things to trial because they feel like they will have success there's a lot of Uh, backing in in courts. There's recent cases where juries in Florida have sided with officers and maybe there's that confidence. But I think there's real concern that maybe, you know, the sheriff might be too emotionally involved or, you know, you know, The main thing is people have been calling for citizen review boards and more transparency and things like that. And this seems to be the opposite of that, taking that away from the public and having more involvement. I think so. That's where a lot of the frustration is coming.
1: We've got a call. Michael, good morning. Welcome to uh, First Coast Connect.
4: Hey, good morning, everyone. Um, Great show. Happy to be on. Um, I think it especially is troubling what happened Tuesday. I'm part of an organization where a lot of folks come out to speak against it. I think a majority of public commenters did speak against it, but I think um, there was a lot of pandering because I think this was made in some explicitly. If you support this, you're uh, um, for law enforcement. If you vote against it, you're against law enforcement. And I think we have to get past that. Um, you know, We all support good law enforcement, but we want accountability, we want transparency. And, and particularly, I think, you know, Jamie Johnson, the officer involved is, um, is an officer who's also involved in the popular kind of Lucian Woods um, sort of beating that happened recently. So I think this is emotional for the sheriff. Um, in a lot of ways, I think you see in Tallahassee, there's a bill SB 576 that's um, actually um, scheduled to be on second reading, I believe next week, that would essentially ban civilian review boards and there was an amendment added last week that would make it so that the sheriff has all power to appoint any civilian review boards. So it's ever since we, our mayor has been elected, we've seen kind of a gradual shift of folks trying to take away powers. And um, she did support the civilian review board. She spoke about it on your show yesterday. So I, it, I think it's just a trend um, that we're seeing really with power concentrating in the hands of one constitutional office, officer named the sheriff and taking it away from another um, with this new administration. So I think that's important to call out and, and see, and I hope that um, and I hope that this conversation about transparency can keep happening.
1: Thanks, Michael. Uh, Hannah, I want to ask you about that because there was a big turnout by law enforcement, a lot of uniformed officers in the audience. Um, and I think some people were questioning why that was, given the fact that this could actually open officers to some additional financial exposure Um Can you explain kind of how that would work, why that might be financially uh, at risky for some officers?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So that was a big point that the city was making, right? So there were essentially, if you think about it, three different parties involved. There were city officers, so risk management. There were the chief financial officer, OGC, the Office of General Counsel, which is the city's attorneys. There were city council and then there were JSO. And these were the people involved in arguing for this bill whether for or against, right? And so with any financial, with any insurance stuff, it's always going to be a question. And we're not really going to know until the time comes to re-enroll for our liability insurance. However, one of the concerns about this bill was that whenever a settlement ca- settlement is reached, right, let's say the city's risk management team, the city's attorneys, they're all on board. If, for example, the sheriff is not on board, that goes to the city council president to be the tiebreaker. Insurance companies, from what the city was telling us, was that they will not pay out potentially for individual officers if there was a chance to settle and they didn't, and they instead went to court. If they go to court and lose, if there was a possibility for a settlement, it's possible insurance won't pay out for the officer. It's different for the city, but that could potentially put officers at liability and potentially cost them a plenty of money. And
1: Travis, it's, I think, worth noting that this lawsuit initially asked for $5 million. Um, the nature of settlement, obviously, kind of swallow it and, and move on. This was a $200,000 uh, proposed settlement, settlement that was actually reached. Um, so much, much less than the family was asking for. Um, but if it had gone to court, there's really no telling.
3: Right. I mean, that's that's the thing. It, it puts going to court, there's so many unknowns. You don't know how things can play out. Different kinds of, um, you know, evidence can be introduced much different than say, uh, a state attorney's investigation, um, looking into the background of the officer, things like that. I mean, it just seems like, um, the, the money, if you're thinking money wise, this might not be the best play, but it seems like it's, it's deeper than that. It's, it's, Vouching for your officers, having their back, it seems like. Um, So it's just, it's very different.
1: We've got a call. Chris, good morning. Welcome to First Coast Connect.
5: Good morning. Um, There's a, I'm an attorney and, you know, we deal with something similar to this in medical malpractice cases where we have what's called a consent policy. And it's not the policy that, it's not all med mal coverage is, but when there's a consent policy, the doctor has to agree to the settlement or it doesn't happen. And, you know, there are a lot of times where the insurance adjuster handling the case, attorney representing you know the defendant doctor think that the settlement is necessary and the doctor will say, no, it's my reputation on the hook. I'm not going to agree to settle. Those kinds of coverages are more expensive and not available across the board but the, the theory behind it is, you know, it's it's a doctor. It's his it's his reputation or her reputation. And but this isn't the idea of taking that and applying it to a public agency, particularly the police, is is that doesn't make any sense because it's not one individual and it, it's it's a public agency. The public agencies shouldn't operate as if uh, it's a private fiefdom or something personal. And uh, you know, the, that type of insurance coverage in the med sphere is, is more expensive. And I'm confident that if we do this, we'll lose it. Uh, the city will either lose the coverage or it'll be a lot more expensive. So it, it doesn't serve the public interest. It just seems to really be for someone's private desire for more power, uh, which is not the purpose of government. Thanks, Not Chris. our government,
1: at least. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate the comment. Um, Nikisha. I, I think, to be fair, the sheriff is saying that this is a reputational matter for his officers and that this officer was cleared the optics of paying out $200,000 for what they consider an attempt on an officer's life. I mean, that's what they say is, happened here, is that Jamie Johnson attempted to kill this officer and the officer in turn killed him. So the sheriff is saying, that this is a matter of reputation, that it is worth, I think his spokesperson, Laura Matina said, that um, even a $1 settlement could have, quote, catastrophic reputational
2: loss for JSO. Um, so that's that's her posture. It might be a reputational issue for the sheriff, for the officer, for law enforcement, but the stop was over a seatbelt that he said was not fastened, which it was, and then there was a suspicion of the marijuana flake that led to the final altercation correct so we already have over policing and surveillance in black communities around crime historically and that's a reputation that's lasted for centuries and yet we're talking about one officer who has as you mentioned has had prior bad acts as you mentioned may be involved in the lakean woods beating and yet we are concerned that that reputation is more important than the life of somebody that you took. Like, if you want your reputation to be better, have better training, have better transparency, have a civilian review board, release body camera footage, do all the things that you said you would do to to increase the public trust of your institution, of your officers, so that when something like this does happen, we can follow the logic because right now it just seems like you're being cheap and that you're saying that you didn't know about it, what you lied about. Maybe you didn't check your email that day, but there's a record of that that of that communication train and to say that one dollar is would have catastrophic repercussions. This is the same dog whistles that black people in black communities and the over police have been hearing for centuries that any accountability by an institution for the lives that they take is too much to ask for. And it's not.
1: We have a comment, Tom, from Facebook. He says, this concentration of power is not a good idea. It allows officers to respond to suits emotionally. Um, Jack Webb, a former city council president, emailed, I think it's very interesting that the day after the council passed this bill, giving the sheriff veto power over settlements, the state attorney's office dropped all charges against Ronnie Reed. He says, who's the dude, <laughs> the man who is illegally strip searched in public. Um, that was a case that got a lot of attention and reporting from the tributary here in Jacksonville. Um, and I don't know that I know the through line there necessarily. But um, Hannah, if one constitutional officer agrees, there, there is an amendment that was built in to this bill if, if the sheriff or someone disagrees with the settlement that allows the council president to step in.
0: Yes, the idea being that it's almost supposed to act as a check in power. Now, there was another amendment that failed on the floor the night of the vote where Council Member Rockman Johnson proposed forming almost a committee for certain settlements over a certain amount of money in which there would essentially be a team of people involving the council president, involving the constitutional officer, involving risk management, all that, and essentially majority rules. That amendment was struck down from... Republican city council members who said that it gutted the intent of the bill. Um, Democratic council members said that wasn't true, that it still brought in the constitutional officer, but it did fail by a pretty large margin. Another thing that I think is worth saying is that the city, Anna Brochet, chief financial officer under Mayor Deegan, did propose early on just putting in different policy changes, so increasing the amount of communication between risk management and JSO. City Council did not go for that. They didn't consider that in an amendment.
1: Well, I want to move on to another topic that was in the headlines this week, um, one that seems to perpetually rise again. It's the issue of Confederate monuments. In this case, could it be the death of a controversial bill moving through Tallahassee? Travis, uh, this bill was introduced by a Jacksonville lawmaker after the removal of a Jacksonville monument, the Confederate monument in Springfield. And initially, it seemed to have quite a bit of momentum. Now seems like it may be stalled.
3: Yeah, um you know the exchanges that happened last week in the Senate where some people spoke out um it seems to be like some cracks in in that legislation um I found it shocking that Republicans are now speaking out against the language used to support this bill. I mean even even if to me it's kind of uh empty because they they know the type of people that, that support these bills um, and these comments have been made for years. But to me, it just shows like maybe some of these these culture war bills. Um, USA Today did a big story about how a lot of the culture war bills are are not making it through committee. Um, these things that DeSantis was pushing, you know, through the pandemic and through his presidential campaign, I think they're seeing that they're not widely popular Um And they're starting to kind of fade away. And even some Republicans are having some doubts about that.
1: Um, We spoke actually to Mayor Donna Deegan a little bit when she was on the program this week um, about uh, Senate President Kathleen Pasadomo's decision saying that these bills are effectively dead.
0: Whatever derails that bill. And in fact, it is derailed, I think is a good thing. It is very, very Clear when you look at some of these comments, where racism plays in this issue, it it is a part of this issue in a big way, and I think that that to see that recognized is is a positive thing. But I, like I said, in Tallahassee, having covered Tallahassee for many many years, um, nothing nothing's done until the hanky drops. So I'm 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 watching along with everybody else, Nikisha. It
1: seems like some of the lawmakers um, were a little bit spooked just by the fact that. There were so many white supremacists lining up vocally behind this bill um, at a committee meeting. You know, some of them, including Jennifer Bradley of Clay County, kind of, you know, said she was going to hold her nose and vote for it. Almost didn't vote for it. Um, but shortly after that committee meeting, I think maybe the attention that it got has caused the, the 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 city, the Senate president to rethink it.
2: One almost doesn't count. You still voted for it. And as a black woman, I don't even know how you did that. And I'm just going to stand 10 toes down on that. Um, Mayor Deegan said, you know, racism is a part of this issue. No, racism is the issue. White supremacy is the issue. That is what those monuments uphold. That is what those monuments stand for. That is what those monuments were erected forward to remind black people that they are supposed to be subordinate and subjected to white supremacy at all times, no matter if the 13th Amendment says we're free. That's my other point. Also, no one wants to be called racist to their face. (laughs) And so... To for the Senate president to say, Well, the bill is now dead because you feel away because the white supremacists came out and said, You're taking away our white heritage, you are curtailing white supremacy, you are not upholding our values. Yes, that makes you look bad, but who did you think was supporting you in the first place? Who did you think wanted to uphold those monuments in the first place? Who did you think your audience was when the governor? And then you as a legislator were saying, we're going to get this done and we're going to get this through because it's upholding history and heritage and culture. Why are we trying to uphold history of hate? Why is that important? And so to come back and say that the bill is now dead, you didn't do anybody any favors. You just don't like the way it looks. And so now you want to save your own reputation, going back to what we were talking about earlier, to say that the bill is dead like you did a, like you did someone a favor. The only person that did something courageous was Mayor Deegan when she took the monument down with private funding And Mayor Lenny Curry, when he took the Miami down in um, what is now James Weldon, Weldon Weldon Johnson Park. And even then, you did not have this sort of backlash because he was a Republican. And so he was supposed to be like some type of white savior. Don't don't try it. You are hiding your hands when you throw a rock and everybody sees it. Hannah, I want
1: to ask you, this is one of uh, four bills that maybe is DOA now, uh, including a bill that would prohibit the government display of pride flags, a ban that would um, prevent people from using the pronoun that that they choose um, in government offices um, and government jobs, and then uh, prohibiting certain nonprofits from training employees on sexual orientation or gender identity issues. Um, so is there a sense that maybe the war on woke is over, or is this just maybe a temporary ceasefire?
0: I... Definitely think it's a little too early to say that it's over. I think that something's important, something that's important to remember, even with taking this monument bill, for instance, right? This was a bill that was introduced last legislative session. It could come back, right? It doesn't look that way, considering what the Senate president said, that she doesn't necessarily have faith that it would be taken up. However, it could be reintroduced. Same with some of these other bills. Because the Florida legislative session is so short, it's so quick, they only have so much time. It'll just be a matter of waiting to see what comes up next year. All
1: right. I want to move on now to Duval County Public
0: Schools superintendent search.
1: It's been without a permanent superintendent for the past eight months. It's no closer to finding one than it was last July, but the district is hoping to change that. Travis, they're kickstarting a national search for a new leader. Remind us why this process has taken as long as it has.
3: Well, no one wants the job. And no, and the only people qualified. Uh, there's not enough people qualified. I mean, it's it was just shocking to me when you hear the numbers in 2018 when they were doing this search. 80 people applied. Now it's 10, 10 for a for a job that makes three uh, up to 350 thousand dollars a year, and it's it's a direct result of. Everything that's going on, specifically, I think, with the governor and the the battle, how education has come so politicized. No one wants to take the job. Um, They're getting superintendents across the state are getting squeezed by by the governor, by the legislature. They're having control stripped away. There's less funding going to public schools. So it's it's just no one wants to sign up for something that's going to be an uphill battle where you're going to get stomped on by by parents and and the legislature and the governor and it's just a very difficult job that no one's going to sign up for so or wants to sign up for it seems so it's it's going to be very difficult to try to find someone that's really qualified and wants the job um in in a school district that uh is is very big
1: Hannah, i want to ask you about i mean he says you know 10 people applied but in fact only five of them were qualified for the position (laughs) Um, They're talking about maybe modifying some of the parameters of this, uh, possibly um, uh, uh, changing some of the requirements in terms of, like, needing a certain specific advanced degree. Um, Is there a sense in the community that that there is going to be somebody of this community, representative of this community, that they're going to be able to find in this difficult environment? I mean, as Travis said, there's a lot of pressures, and some of them come from the school board itself.
0: I think that it's fair to say that the community has been very disheartened by how long this has taken. And I think that just like in any community, you want someone who's been here. You want someone who understands the culture and is able to speak in an educated way on what's already happened. That being said, obviously, the first go around, not that many people applied. And so I think it'll be interesting to see how many applicants we actually do get. And I know an argument from the um, school district was that, well, they had placed out the ad at a weird time of the year where maybe people thought that they'd have to leave their current job. And so maybe doing it the second part from, I believe it's March 15th to April 15th, they'll get more applicants. So it'll be a matter of time. Um,
1: Nikisha, just briefly, um, how heavily does the ouster of Dr. Diana Green weigh on these proceedings?
2: I think it casts a shadow for sure. Um, as Travis said, like, this is a job that nobody wants. And we had a phenomenal superintendent that everybody on the school board had agreed with until the last year and a half when she had to literally fight for her job and fight for the lives of the children that she was that she was responsible for with the governor over common sense policy like mask mandates or books. So I think it definitely casts a shadow. Who wants to deal with that? And if you are at a level where you have a PhD, you are in education or whatever the case, there are other ways to make $300,000 besides coming to a district where you're going to have to fight with the legislator and a governor and a combative school board and you can't really do your job because you have to do all the political mongering behind the scenes. Who wants to put up with that? No one. And so I think it, it definitely casts a shadow because it's like, well, if this happened to her... It could happen to anyone.
3: The superintendent of the year in Florida. Right. (laughs) She's not safe. Right. Like
2: she was the most qualified candidate and they got rid of her. She said she resigned. And so I will respect that language. But she was ousted and so she was forced to resign. And so this is a problem of your own making.
1: Nikisha Williams, Travis Gibson, Hannah Holthouse. Thank you all so much for being here today. We appreciate it. Thank you. you. All right. Stay tuned. Up next, the lost cause myth and how one former Confederate loyalist is fighting to debunk it. Welcome back. I'm joined now by Ty Sigily, a retired brigadier general, former head of the History Department at the U.S. Military Academy, and presidential advisor to the National World War II Museum in New Orleans. He's currently teaching history at Hamilton College. Welcome, Ty Sigily. Thanks for being here.
6: Thanks, Anne. It's a great to be here with you. Thanks. So
1: is also a scholar on racial equity and the author of Robert E. Lee and Me, A Southerner's Reckoning with the Myth of the Lost Cause. Long before the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, you began questioning why there was a statue of Robert E. Lee at West Point, where you were teaching at the time, despite the fact that he led the war against the United States, the Civil War. Where did
6: this exploration take you? I said, thanks, Anne. So I was I was living uh, at West Point on Lee Road by Lee Gate in Lee Housing Area next to Lee Child Development Center. And I, I went by our barracks at West Point, which is the greatest honor to have a barracks named after you. And I went by by MacArthur Barracks in Washington, Eisenhower, Pershing, Grant, Sherman, and I saw this Lee Barracks. And I wondered, huh, why did that, why was it named there? I understood my alma mater, I went to Washington and Lee University, but I couldn't understand why it was there. So I looked into the archives and I found out that in the 19th century that uh, that they banished Confederates as traitors because the Article Three, Section Three of the Constitution says that there's only one crime and that's levying war against the United States, which is treason. So if it didn't come right after the Civil War, which I thought all these things would, when did they come? Well, it turns out the things that at West Point were named the 1930s when the first black cadet came to West Point in over 50 years, when the army was being forced to integrate in the early 1950s, and when minority admissions started in the early 1970s. It turns out the Confederate memorialization at West Point was a reaction to integration. And as I've studied this more, I realized Confederate monuments are either a, a uh, to celebrate the return of white supremacy, or to protest against integration. And that made me so angry at myself and at the institutions I love, West Point and the Army, for having these racist uh, monuments all around that nobody knew about and nobody cared.
1: And so you decided to explore this. You're a historian, but you this book is, is also it's a memoir. So why did you choose to tell the story in this fashion?
6: Well, so I use this because I was trying to tell people, you being a know-it-all historian at West Point, about why commemorating Confederate stay at West Point was wrong. And and so I I was, we had this memorial room. We had lost 100 graduates killed in the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan at West Point. This was by 2010. Man, we were really hurting. And so I came up with the idea to create a memorial room to put the 1,550 names of those who, in Lincoln's words, gave the last full measure of devotion to the nation who died in combat. But should Confederate graduates go in there? And I argued really strongly, no, they shouldn't, because they fought to destroy their country. They abrogated their oath. They killed U.S. Army soldiers for the worst possible reason, to create a slave republic. And I gave this answer to our leadership at West Point, and they said, no, we want to bring Confederates in. I was so devastated. I went back and talked to my wife and she and said, you know, I failed my argument, Failed with them. She said, well, did you tell them your own past? I said, well, of course not. I'm a historian that tells other people's stories. She told me that if you're ever going to have success, you're going to have to fess up about your own background. Mm. And so that's what I started to do. And that gave me some success in telling the story. And so
1: what is your background? How did you how were you raised and what were your beliefs when you were a child?
6: Well, I grew up uh, on something called the lost cause myth, which is which is something that that basically says that the Confederates fought with honor and that their cause was honorable. It wasn't about slavery. And so, in Northern Virginia, where I live, Alexandria had more Alexandria, Virginia had more cities, more streets named after Confederates than anybody else. I was bused across town from the white elementary school to the segregated, all black named Robert E. Lee. For me, on a scale of one to ten, Lee would have been an eleven. And so it was everything about, about my life said that I wanted to be an educated Christian gentleman like my hero, Robert E. Lee. So I grew up completely uh, surrounded by everything. I mean, so in other words, you would say, well, how did you think about this? Guy? Well, does a fish know it's wet? My culture gave status to Lee and other Virginia, quote unquote, gentlemen like him.
1: And you use that term, you know, an educated Christian gentleman throughout the book. What does that signify to you?
6: It signifies the- status and power. That's really what it is, because that's what I wanted. You know, if you dress a certain way, if you uh, act a certain way, then you will get the status of being a gentleman, uh, a Southern gentleman, an educated gentleman, a Virginia gentleman, which was, in my world, a slightly higher caste. I mean, these were about, that's what it was, status and power. And I wanted that as a young kid. And for me, I saw that as the way of getting it, which is why I went to the school I went to, Washington and Lee, to be more like my hero, Robert E. Lee. So, yeah, these things were powerful uh, uh, connotations, uh, markers of status.
1: So was it difficult when you began to kind of explore that myth and break it apart?
6: Oh, yeah, it, it was really difficult because I, when I went through my own life, I realized that everything about my life, I mean, I was sort of the Forrest Gump of this lost cause, of this idea that the South fought an honorable, the Confederates, remember, it's not the South. Often we say the South, is the white is silent. Because remember, uh, there are more African-Americans in the South than anywhere else. And during the Civil War, there were more there were there lots of white people that did not fight with the Confederacy. So and then I looked at my schooling. So I went to high school in a segregated School that was created, a SEGI Academy, to ensure white kids didn't go to school with black kids. Uh, Washington and Lee, my school refused to allow Martin Luther King to talk there in 1961. Uh, The Army was segregated for much longer than I realized, really only deeply desegregating in the 1970s. So every part of my own life uh, and that, and, and, and when I was growing up, my dad had the four flags of the Confederacy over the mantle. So yeah, I was steeped in these lies. And they were, they, these lines had a pernicious purpose, and that was to ensure white political power at the expense of black people.
1: So here in Jacksonville, we recently had a statue removed that was a tribute to the Confederacy and the lost cause. Explain what lost cause ideology is and how it sort of animates the ongoing debate over Confederate history.
6: Right. Well, so imagine that this lost cause, imagine that that the, the, the white South went to war to protect and expand the institution of slavery, which it totally did. And not only did they lose, they were destroyed. 60 percent of Southern wealth gone. And what they were fighting for, which is continued slavery, not only was that gone, but but black men had equal rights and and uh, they could vote with the 15th Amendment. They had equal protection under law in the 14th Amendment. So there was a recreation of a way of, of, of looking about that war to, and, and what those things are, the war wasn't about slavery. Well, that's just not true. You can just read the secession declarations or Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederacy, who said we're fighting for African slavery. Second, that slavery wasn't that bad, that there were kind masters and happy slaves. No, slavery featured legal rape, sell, uh, separating husband from wife, mother from child, and that uh, that Robert E. Lee, at the top of this, was the finest human that ever lived, that Reconstruction, that period after the war, was a failure. No, it was an attempt at biracial democracy, but this lost cause has a pernicious purpose because the South I was born into was a racial police state, and this lost cause was the foundation of Jim Crow laws, new constitutions, and every state had a Jim Crow constitution that they created around 1900, and it was reinforced by lynching. 5,000 black men, women, and children were lynched during this period to enforce the lost cause to enforce a racial police state. And monuments were the symbol of this that were put up between 1890 and 1920 to ensure that everybody saw that, that, uh, that white people were, as they said then, back in the saddle, that they had complete political control.
1: You make a fairly um, dramatic statement arguing that lynching and Confederate monuments served the same purpose. Can you kind of expand on that?
6: Sure. Well, many monuments are outside the courthouse. And so the only way a Black person could go into the courthouse was as either a defendant or as a custodian. So they went up at the same time. And if you read the speeches of many of them, they are celebrating the return of Anglo-Saxon rule. By that, they meant white people after this this attempt at biracial democracy from 1865 to 1877. So during that time, 2,000 Black people served in higher office. By 1900, the number is zero, even though states like Mississippi and South Carolina are majority black during this time. So then many of these lynchings were around the courthouse. They were to cow the black population and the black population protested these monuments, but they had no political voice. So if you could imagine that the that the, the terror campaign of lynching is to ensure that no one votes, the monuments are there as a public symbol to ensure that, that, that white people know they're in charge and black people know that they're not in charge because they're celebrating this antebellum uh, era of slavery—that's what they're celebrating—or the re- insurrection that was the the, con- the Confederacy. So, so these two things are inextricably linked. They happen at exactly the same time, about 1890 to 1920.
1: And you're tracking that, you know, as there steps towards integration and equal rights, um, particularly in the military, that that was also accompanied by this memorialization of the Confederacy.
6: Yeah, absolutely. In the 19th century, in the military, they refused. To, to accept the Confederates because they were traitors. They killed U.S. Army soldiers. You know, they're good guys and they wore Army blue, like I did, like, like Ulysses S. Grant did, like George Washington did. And then they're the bad guys that try to destroy this country that we love. So the military waits until the 1930s. But remember, by that point, the, the South is a racial police state and it's one party, it's the Democrats at that time, that are controlling everything. There is no political power for a third of the population. So you have to appease these white segregationists to get anything done. That's why the Social Security Act excludes Black people from uh, from the front. There's no there's no domestics, laborers, or farm workers allowed in the Social Security. That's the only way they could get that law passed. So yeah, the military excluded Black people and really integration starts in the 1950s, but it really doesn't go in a big way until the 1970s.
1: And so how did this... Um, affect your relationship when you were part of the military, when you're teaching at West Point and you're talking about these discoveries that you're making and assertions that are probably pretty difficult for people in the military to hear? Uh, How did that change your relationship with the military?
6: Well, it got me in trouble and that's what happened. So I I did this video in 2015. We were doing a book called The West Point History of the Civil War and I did a video for PragerU, which is very conservative. Saying that the Civil War was about slavery, I argued that the that uh, the citizens of the Southern states were willing to fight and die to preserve the morally repugnant institution of slavery, and the Army threatened to investigate me for political speech. I got death threats to my West Point email address. It was really it felt dangerous because here's the thing: history is dangerous because it challenges our myths and our identities, and and that means that when you say something, even if it's based on fact. Um, it's going to upset people. And the Army at that point had nine Army bases named after Confederates. They were in this sort of pickle. They were in a jam. How how do we tell the truth about this? We don't want to tell the truth until our political bosses say, hey, it's okay to change them. So I understand the Army was in a pickle. And that's one of the reasons I retired from the military, so I could speak freely about this issue. And now, Anne, it's hard to shut me up.
1: And so you're a historian, and you are exploring this history that you You know, places that you lived. um, Were you familiar with that, those components of, you know, where you'd lived, the, the history of those places, even as a historian?
6: Not until I looked at it. I didn't know that my home in Walton County, Georgia, where I went to high school, was the site of the last mass lynching in American history in 1946. No one talked about that when I lived there.
1: And so you now say Lee committed treason to preserve slavery. Some people might say you're holding. to a modern standard what do you what do you say to that
6: yeah well i looked at this so i went back and looked and there were eight u.s army colonels from virginia in 1861 all west point graduates seven remained loyal to the united states and they said that lee was committing treason grant said he was committing treason lincoln said he was committing treason in fact lee was indicted for treason he was never uh, tribe. And then in, in Christmas Day 1868, all Confederates, including Lee and Jefferson Davis, were, were granted amnesty, a pardon, for the crime of treason by President Andrew Johnson. So Lee, I believe he absolutely was a traitor. He killed U.S. Army soldiers. He levied war against the United States. And by the way, during his campaign in Antietam and Gettysburg, he captured free Black people. Every part of his army brought them back to Virginia for sale his army slaughtered black prisoners of war. And he gave a talk in uh, 1866 in Congress that said, if it were uh, after the war, if it were up to him, he would kick every single black person out of the state of Virginia. He advocated racial cleansing. So the thing is, we wanna commemorate heroes, those who represent our values. We're still gonna teach the history of the Battle of Gettysburg at West Point, and Lee's gonna lose every year. But commemoration is about who we want is about, who our values are about. And to me, Lee does not represent the values of me or the US military. And then after I, I got a PhD in history and became a scholar, then I had to marry those two soldier and scholars. I'll just tell you, the soldier one, I didn't realize that the oath that we took, that many of your listeners may have taken or their families to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, who are those domestic enemies? They're Confederates. That oath was written in 1862. So, and then, so I love my country. I hate people that kill U.S. Army soldiers or try to destroy this country I love. I have huge hope that when Americans are presented with an accurate story of history, that they are going to be able to know that these Confederates try to destroy the country we love, to, to further this, this moral horror of slavery. So I think that's a great thing. So I believe that when you know that the Civil War is about slavery, you know the Confederates did not fight an honorable fight. They fought an immoral fight for an immoral cause. And if we get that history right, the rest of it is gonna come eventually, I think. The thing is, we don't own the actions of people that lived in the 1860s or the 1930s or the 1960s or even from 10 years ago we have a responsibility to know what happened then because the only way we can make adequate and and correct policy is to know where we are. So how can we know where we wanna go unless we know where we've been? And, And knowing an accurate history is the way to go. So in fact, in the early part of the 20th century, the United Daughters of the Confederacy created a pamphlet called A Measuring Rod for textbooks in schools. And they went through and said, does it say the Civil War was not about slavery? Does it say that slavery was good? Does it say that segregation is good? And they, they, they would use this checklist to throw out all the other textbooks all throughout the South. And while some people are trying to do that now, hey, you've got this thing called the Internet. You've got movies like, like Emancipation and 12 Years a Slave. And there's no way to keep this information out. So I I do feel hopeful that while people are, there's a rear guard action trying to to stop it. They just, I just don't think they're going to be successful.
1: It's a real pleasure to talk to you, Tyson. Julie, thank you so much.
6: Oh, and thank you so much. Been great talking to you today.
5: Amelia Island presents Concord Week, February 29th through March 3rd, featuring rare and vintage autos, vehicle auctions, road tours, and more, culminating with the Amelia Concord d'Elegance. Details at AmeliaIsland.com slash Concord Week. Wayne Hogan of the Terrell Hogan Personal Injury and Wrongful Death Law Firm. Serious injury cases are complex, and civil trial attorneys present the evidence juries need to see and hear. More at WayneHogan.law. Kansas
6: City celebrates and mourns. Guys, 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 something's going on.
1: Democrats chalk up a special election win on Long Island. House Republicans find the votes to pass an historic impeachment. And what price will Donald Trump pay for what a judge has called his ill-gotten gains? More on the Friday News Roundup
7: next time on 1A.
0: Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9.
1: Welcome back. The music led festival Winterland returns for its sixth installment next weekend. The event takes place February 23rd through 25th at James Weldon Johnson Park and features local artists and national touring acts. Joining me now are musicians and festival co founders, Lena Simon and Glenn Van Dyke. Welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Lena, what was the genesis for Winterland?
7: Oh, well, Glenn and I both uh, were musicians by trade. Uh, Glenn was living in New York. For 10 years, I was in Los Angeles and Seattle and touring around the world, and we had both experienced some really wonderful music festivals everywhere and internationally, and we wanted to bring our favorite elements of that to Jacksonville and support the community here in a different way.
1: And so what are your favorite elements of the festivals that you've been to? What did you want to bring and create here?
7: Well, we definitely built the festival back of house first. So we wanted to make sure that the artists were having a good time and felt taken care of and paid well and fed and mingling, networking.
1: It's so important. You know, I know that there was a venue down in St. Augustine for a long time. Uh, It's still there, but it kind of earned a reputation, Cafe Eleven, of being like a place where bands just love to come. It was on the ocean. They'd put them up in a nice hotel. They would have a ton of fun and you know a great breakfast the next morning before they got on the road um, as a musician how much does that kind of boost your mood and make you feel welcome and and enthusiastic
8: it's so important um a lot of tour isn't isn't glamorous and you know you really you're only on stage for you know if if you're if you're lucky an hour you know a day and uh the rest of it is driving and parking trying to find parking um you know it's it's really it can be really strenuous and um, so like bringing that element to, to inviting like touring bands and coming to, to come to Jacksonville and to experience or St. Augustine how they were doing and to experience something that um, it, you walk in and you feel taken care of and you feel comfortable, you feel like you're in good hands. And then on the flip side of that, um, there aren't a lot of environments like that here in Jacksonville for our local talent. So um, we really aim to provide an atmosphere where, If you are from Jacksonville, you feel like you're 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 being elevated. You feel special. You feel like you are like the star that, you know, you are with if we get a little cheesy about it, you know. And Glenn, once you take care of the back of the house and you build that out, then what does what's
1: the front facing side? What is the audience experience and what did you want to make that experience like?
8: Uh, fun and, you know, whimsical. Like I've, I love creating worlds. And um, I think like, you know, bringing a lot of imagination into into a front of house experience where you can like, you know, walk in and, and kind of place all your worries away and just focus on enjoying and spending time with friends and listening to, you know, good music.
1: So, uh, Lena, give me a little bit of a sense of the lineup, the mix, the genre for people who aren't familiar with Wonderland
7: well it we pride ourselves on being a multi genre festival, so it is anything you can think of we we try to put it in there uh we've got indie rock, psychedelic rock hip hop r and b country folk, dream pop dance electric <laughs> uh, yeah what uh yeah it's I don't know, I think that's most of them. <laughs> And um, some of them are local,
1: some of them are national. What's the setup? I mean, I've been to James Weldon Johnson Park, obviously, um, in the center of you know right in front of City Hall. Where is the stage? Where's the audience? How's that uh, or or like orientated?
7: Yeah. So we have uh, some artists on the on the gazebo stage, which is right on the corner of uh, Monroe and Laura Street, and that'll be in a portion of the park that is free and open to the public and behind a privacy fence we'll have uh the main stage which will have uh most i guess most of our bands uh will be playing there and yeah there's going to be food vendors there's going to be local maker market um what am i missing
8: yeah we're bringing in a um, a skate ramp that park has a, a, a long history in jacksonville of being a really epic skate spot so um while we're while the, the, the staircase won't be available that'll be the entrance to the festival we do have a mini ramp um and yeah that it's uh food trucks Mm -hmm. uh local creators markets yeah
1: um and so tell me a little bit about something called winterland music outreach foundation what
8: is that glenn and what does it aim to do so that's it the an overarching um like goal like we hug the festival within the the nonprofit, um and we want to bring more educational workshops to help um, local creatives like pursue their careers in the music industry. Um, There isn't a lot of resources here in Jacksonville to show people how they can take tangible steps to create, um, you know, lucrative careers in the music industry. So we want to host more uh, opportunities for people to learn how to create things like EPKs, Um, how to book tours. Tell us what an EPK is. It's an electronic press kit. Um, So it'd be something that you'd send out if you want uh, your music to be played on on a non-com radio station, for example. Mm -hmm. And so you offer those classes? Is that something that people can
1: reach out to you about or are those uh, scheduled just on occasion?
8: We are launching this program in 2024. So if you follow us on social media, we'll have more information about it um, coming up.
1: And Lena, how can people find out or get tickets? How do they get involved if they want to go to Winterland?
7: Uh, they can. There's all all sorts of information on our website, which is www.winterlandpresents.org, uh, as well as our social media handle, uh, at Winterland Presents.
1: And what are you most looking forward to?
7: Oh, God. I don't know. Uh, actually performing. <laughs> yeah, we do get the rare treat of uh, performing at our own festival. Tell so. us your band name.
1: Kairos Creature Club. All right. We'll be looking for that. And how about you, Glenn?
8: Oh, uh, it's just the smiles, truly. Yeah, I, I really enjoy watching people have a good time. Well, thank you both so much for being here, Lena Simon, Glenn Van Dyke. We're looking forward
1: to Winterland Festival next weekend. Thank you. And that's our program. We welcome your feedback, comments, or suggested topics. Just email First Coast Connect at wjct.org. Today's program will be rebroadcast at eight o'clock and all of our shows are archived at wjct.org and on your favorite podcast platform. Don't forget to listen Saturday at four when neurologist Dr. Joe Servin explores Lewy body dementia and schizophrenia on what's health got to do with it. The executive producer of First Coast Connect is David Luckin. Our producer is Stacey Bennett. Kathy Waterman is our associate producer and our director is Brady Coram. Join us again Monday when we discuss why Florida lawmakers continue to refuse federal money that could provide health care to more than 1 million residents. I'm Ann Schindler, and you've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9.
5: Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.